Welcome everyone, I'm Andrew Duckworth and I'd like to thank you for joining us for our podcast for the month of April. We hope you're all keeping safe and well uh, as we all hope that brighter times are on the horizon in the months ahead. We also hope that you've enjoyed our podcasts uh, so far this year. We kick the year off with uh, a great discussion on the effect of antibiotic loaded bone cement on risk of revision following hip and knee arthroplasty. And in February, we chatted about the latest trial from the White Group that compared the Xbox dynamic plating system and the sliding hip screw for fixation of trochanteric fractures of the hip. As always, we hope you're enjoying the content from the Knowledge Translation team here at the BJJ and that we're achieving our aim to improve the accessibility and visibilities of the study we publish here at the journal. As part of this, over the upcoming year, as some of you already know, we're producing special edition podcasts with our guests being the incredibly hardworking and invaluable specialty editors here at the journal. The aim of these will be to give our listeners an insight into the vital work they do at, here at the journal, what they feel the current research trends are in their area, as well as highlighting some papers from the past year that we've published. We started these in March with a great session with Sam Husedic, our special editor for Knee. And today I have the great pleasure of being joined by our fantastic special editor for Children's Orthopedics, Mr. Dan Perry. Welcome, Dan, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So, Dan, before we discuss the highlight papers, which you've kindly picked for us, I've just been asking our, you all, you know, 2020 was a, a strange and challenging year for all of us. So can you maybe give us a brief overview of your own insights, both with regard to your clinical practice and children's orthopedics, but also in your role as a special editor here at the BJJ? Yeah, I mean, what a year. I, I guess working in a children's hospital, so, so I work at Alder Hay, and Alder Hay's solely a children's hospital. So we've been quite protected relative to the rest of you guys. So I, I feel quite fortunate. We, we had a, a tiny spattering of COVID patients. So we admitted some adults into our hospital for the first time since the war. So that kind of changed the dynamic a little bit in the hospital. Mm. But, but we only had, uh, at most, it was a handful of patients, a handful of adults. But that was enough to disrupt some services. Mm. Um, obviously, a lot of what we did still changed. So, you know, PPE and all of that stuff, you know. But, but our elective capacity only ever really dropped to about half. Mm. But we've carried on pretty much throughout. We've been at full pelt in terms of our elective work now for a good few months. That's great. That's good to hear. Have you had much experience of, unfortunately, but of COVID in any of your patients or any patients in the orthopaedic area? There's been a few children who've tested positive on our wards, um, but but none have fortunately been sick. I think we've only had one child in our hospital who's been poorly with COVID. Yeah. And that was, a, you know, a child who otherwise had other problems. Yeah, um, yeah. But aside from that, you know, there's there's an occasional positive patient, but but nothing that's concerning. Absolutely, the one saving grace of this disease, isn't it, that the kids don't seem to be quite badly affected. And how about in terms of research in in children's orthopedics? I suppose for yourself and in general, had you, has that been affected much by the pandemic in terms of you know maybe recruitment to trials or anything like that? Yeah, so I've got quite a, a few trauma trials going on, mm. um, and and the pandemic was was certainly not good for them. You know, yeah. our, our trauma. Our trauma rate massively fell throughout COVID. And I, and I know that was felt across the, the whole country and indeed across the whole world. And we've had lots of submissions to document that to the, the, the Bone and Joint Journal, which I'm sure other people have spoken about. So that really impacted on recruitment. And it wasn't just the fact that that, that it was stopping recruitment because the, the children weren't there, but also the fact that nurses were being pulled away quite rightly to do other studies. You know, the, the NRHR who, who, who deliver all of my studies NHR, you know, led the world in the recovery in the recovery trial and the other trials. And quite rightly, the research nurses were pulled away to deliver that that urgent public health research. But now my mission is very firmly to pull them back and start doing trauma trials again because because you know it, that hasn't stopped and that's not really slowed down. Absolutely. Do you feel that the tide is potentially turning with that down? Do you think it, we are we're close to to starting getting back to those things? 
Yeah, I think so. And, and actually, there were some good bits about the pandemic. Um, so, so it forced surgeons to think about what they were doing and forced them to think about the ways of treating fractures. And in many ways, it opened people's eyes again to to the old-fashioned ways of treating fractures. And 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 you may know one of my trials in particular is called called the Craft Study, and it's yeah. about off-ended distal radius fractures. And a lot of surgeons before the pandemic wouldn't ever have contemplated treating them non-operatively, but actually. They were kind of forced to, and it's been really helpful for me in some ways um, yes. because it's opened people's eyes. No, I think that's right. I think we've seen the same in, in adult trauma. Maybe people have reset a little bit and a lot of these things that we maybe have just sort of fizzled out with time and, you know, an operative uh, you know, management of these fractures sort of has taken over. But I think we have sort of reset our thinking and thinking maybe maybe that is okay and maybe that does work. And I think that's, uh, like you say, the, there's always the positives that come out of, out of difficult and adverse times like this. Before we move on to the highlight papers, though, in, in terms of over the past year, maybe 18 months when, when things are a bit more normal, what do you feel have been the main sort of themes and areas of research in the Children Orthopaedic section, whether you go to Biscos or at the journal itself? What's been the main things you've been seeing coming through? So I think there's always the, the typical topics within Children's Orthopaedics. There's always lots of DDAs. There's always a, a splattering of birthdays and Sufi and some ZP. So, so there's all, all, always all of that. There's loads of enthusiasm around the world at the moment for, for trials, for trials in children's orthopedics. And that's both, both within the UK, but also within the US. So there's a group called the Impact Group who are trying to align a lot, a lot of what they're doing with the stuff that we're doing in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also our studies are starting to reach out now into New Zealand and Australia. Brilliant. So um, so there's this big global effort now for for delivering multi-centre international research. So a lot of the, the stuff that's coming through is starting to feed into that and, and starting to bring together those big collaborative groups because increasing that, that's what's driving the world of research, these big collaboratives. Yeah. So, so I guess that's the most exciting thing. And in the UK, that started with a study called BOSS, mm. which was the British Orthopaedic Surgery Surveillance Study. And we're just about to, to, to publish that now. So, yeah. so there's lots of good stuff going on. Yeah, that, that, it does seem that as well with the pandemic, these sort of collaborations, they sort of have, if anything, got stronger, haven't they? And they're the drawing the world together with these things. It's really great to see. And a lot of the work, like you say, that you've been doing, just dragging all these people together and, and creating some fantastic studies and some of which we'll come on to as well. That's that's really interesting. Do you feel, just, just before we move on to those papers, Dan, has there been more of a shift towards trauma research in paediatrics, would you say? Do you think is trauma getting more and more shine on it? So trauma is getting quite a lot of shine on it at the moment. I think certainly within the UK, one of the reasons that trauma is, is getting shine on it. Well, so, so about in 2018, we published the research priorities for the British Society of Children's Orthopaedics. And, and, and we listed some trauma research objectives and some, some elective research objectives. And I think the National Institute of Health Research in the UK, who were the big funding body, I, I think they looked at the trauma questions and saw that they or felt that they were more deliverable, easier to answer. And because we were a relatively research naive group, they decided to focus their investment at the trauma to see if we can deliver it. And if we can deliver it, then then they're going to you know extend that money elsewhere. Yeah. So so I think that's why trauma's got so much focus because it's kind of the low hanging fruit. Yeah. You can deliver this. Look, hey, you can deliver the really big questions. Definitely. And I think that's what it's about. That's really interesting. That's great. So, Dan, if we move on to some of the papers you've really kind of picked, with, picked for us, we've got four to discuss. So uh, the first paper is actually from my colleagues here in Edinburgh, and the aim of that study was to compare the prevalence of hip displacement and dislocation in a population of children 
with CP in Scotland before and after the initiation of a HIP surveillance program. And some of the some of the background to this study is sort of related to some of the HIP surveillance studies that have been set up in, in Scandinavian countries such as Sweden, which they mentioned in their paper. So what, what made you pick this paper down? What, what was it you liked about this? We spoke about these collaboratives and, and what difference collaboratives make. And I think this is one of the really big successes of a collaborative that, that's going on in the, at, the, at the moment. So obviously, you mentioned that the cerebral palsy surveillance program started in Sweden. Mm. Um, and, and really, James Robb and Mark Gaston really championed it in, in Scotland and championed its development in Scotland. Uh, and I think it's been a huge success but because more than anything, it's got all the surgeons working together in a really systematic way which, you know, is really cool in itself yeah. before you've even got any results. Yeah. But the fact that people follow a vague yeah. protocol is cool. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. That's really good. And, and, and it's quite amazing. The numbers from the Swedish one alone, they say in their introduction, fell from 8% to 0.5%. And they've seen similar improvements, haven't they, in terms of uh, since the introduction of their surveillance program? Yeah, so so it's a it's a roughly 50% reduction yeah. displacement um, and, and dislocation. So, you know, it's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and, and that's so by reduction, that means that they're intervening earlier so that it doesn't come to the, the severe effects or the severe end of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess one of the criticisms that, that people may say is, well, actually, you're still operating. You're just changing when you operate. Yeah. And, you know, so does it truly make a difference? You know, is it better to do this active early intervention or is it better to to be more reactive? And, and we, we don't truly know the answer to that. No. But nevertheless, I think this is a really great study. And, you know, CPIPs, uh, this cerebral palsy integrated examination s- system, is very much spreading now across the whole of the UK. That's interesting. I know Steve Cook in Coventry is very much championing it in, in yeah. England, yeah. but it's going very much UK-wide. That's interesting. And I think it's amazing, isn't it? Because a big study like this, and like you say, there are limitations to it, like they discuss, and you're not, they're not really determining surgical protocol or anything like that, but it's a start, isn't it? And it's where things can sort of develop from, really, isn't it, from this? No, absolutely. And, you, you know, I, th- I think increasingly that there will be more and more protocolized aspects of it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it, it's very much the start. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So if we move on to the next next paper, Dan, uh, we'll discuss which is actually from the, the team in Leeds and, and, and similar lines in terms of collaboration and, and what you can do. And particularly, I suppose, answering difficult questions with, with rare conditions or rare problems. And they basically looked at determining the surgeries that are undertaken for osteonecrosis of the hip in patients who've undergone treatment for ALL or acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Uh, and they looked at timing of operations and subsequent procedures and also looked at some of the sort of management uh, options for it. Was it similar reasons, Dan, you, you found this interesting? I, mean, I thought it was a really interesting paper, actually. Yeah, so this group of patients, um, they're, they're so difficult. You know, they'll come to you in clinic and, and they've had such tough lives. At the end of all their treatment, they've had loads of chemotherapy, loads of steroids. At the end of all of it, they've got this horrible hip or this horrible joint. And you look at them in clinic and you think, oh, my gosh, you know, what, what can I do for you? Mm. And you feel like the you're like you've got no real idea what to do, and you know, kind of people talk about core decompression, but but you've really got nothing to hang your hat on, yeah. um, whether you should or shouldn't do anything. And, and and as you say, this came from a really solid base. You know, the, yeah. the, the it was from a from a big ALL study that that ran across you know across the whole UK for a big time period, forty centres. Mm. So it was a really powerful, um, a, a kind of really powerful study. I kind of loved it, you know, from yeah. where it's come from. And, and, and Adele Fishlock and Colin Holton very much championed the orthopedic side of the scene in, in Leeds. Yeah, that's very really interesting. I thought it was interesting, the results that suggested that core decompression of the femoral head 
doesn't seem to delay or improve the rates of femoral head survival. Was that what you'd sort of expect and, and what from your experience and experience of others? Is that, does that sort of confirm that? Yeah, I think it does confirm my prejudices, which is why everyone likes a good paper. You know, if it confirms what you thought all along, then, then it's a good paper. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I think it's quite powerful because you do look at those children across from you in the clinic room and you're thinking, what can I do? I have to do something. Mm. And this is actually quite a powerful paper to say, look, perhaps doing something isn't always the best thing. You know, yeah. it, it's um, like a huge proportion. So, so there were 85 kids they looked at with, with um, avascular necrosis, avascular necrosis and there were 93 operations. So a huge yeah. amount of operations. Yeah. And, and, you know, there were a huge proportion of them ended up getting total hip arthroplasty or total joint arthroplasty. Definitely, definitely. It's very interesting, isn't it? The numbers there are surprising. You know, you know, it's just the amount of intervention that's there. But like you say, it's just that idea that maybe sometimes nothing might be a good thing to, to do for the patient. Do you think that's one of these situations as well? Because it is such a, a relatively rare condition that we can't really do a trial on it, but good data from studies we can use to sort of get some information about how to manage these rarer conditions. Yeah, I, I think I, I think that's it. I think it's just about getting the, the best data. You know, can we do a trial? I think a trial would be really hard to deliver. Yeah. But having said all of that, I guess if there's one group of patients you're going to be able to do a rare disease trial, it's going to be cancer patients. Yeah. Because the cancer network's so well set up, and, and also there's quite a lot of funding around that for them. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 whilst I don't think it's impossible, certainly on an international kind of multi-centre basis, mm. I, I think it'd be a really really tough trial to deliver and. And it's certainly not one we're ready for yet. No, absolutely. Absolutely. That's great, Dan. So if we move on to the last two papers, uh, and these are, uh, we'll sort of discuss these together. So I'll just introduce them both briefly. So both papers are from our team in Nuskim and our good friend Ben Oliver's group. And the first is a systematic review that looked at the, the quality of PROMS reported in childhood fracture trials and sort of recommends outcomes and quality of life using sort of the COSMIN standards. And the other paper um, is from the same team. And that's sort of a retrospective study, which I'm sure is very close to your heart because of CRAF, because of the outcomes of surgical and non-surgical management of offended fractures in children with at least two years of potential growth remaining. What was it about these two studies, Dan, that really caught your attention? So we've talked about this increasing drive to, to do proper multi-centre research in children's orthopaedics. And 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 Ben Marson, who's the first author on both of these papers, he's doing a, a PhD very much to, to kind of drive what outcomes best. And a lot of people will read these papers and kind of not think, but perhaps not think they're overly interesting. But these, well, certainly the outcomes paper, the, so the systematic view of, of what outcomes are used, it's very much understanding what the research process is. And we as orthopaedic surgeons haven't necessarily been that engaged and that yeah. able to understand what the research process is. And the research process is to speak the language of the funders. Yeah. Um, and so the funders are, be it NIHR, be it NIH in the US, be it the Canadian or you know, Australian funders, whoever it may be, they're, they're generally not orthopaedic surgeons. Yeah. Um, they don't care about orthopaedics. They've got no interest in what your disease is or, or what outcomes it is. All they're going to do is look at a grant uh, and on that grant, they need really clear evidence as to why you've chosen the outcome you've chosen. Yeah. And it can't be just because it's your favourite outcome. Yeah. So this that Ben's created is a really simple kind of a way for funders just to see that someone's reviewed the evidence properly yeah. according to, to, to some really key guidelines, so some well-recognised guidelines called the Cosmin Guidelines. And, and it said, look, you know, we've, we've looked at all of the evidence for what's the best outcome in children's trauma um, and we cautiously recommend um, at the moment either Promise or the activity scale for kids. So ask. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I mean, uh, it's not the biggest groundbreaking paper in the world, but in terms of 
communicating to funders and and driving the next stage of research, it's really, really key. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I chose it. What's your sort of experience of promise so far? Because obviously that does seem to be getting a lot of traction and a lot of potentially popularity. Do you think that is maybe the answer to not just for children orthopedics, but for a lot of orthopedics potentially? Yeah, so so I like promise. Um, yeah. I think promise is um, I, I think promise is good. So to those that, that don't know it, can, can I remember what promise stands for? I'm not sure I can remember what promise stands for, but but promise is an NIH measure, and I like promise because it's a computer adapted t- test. Yeah. So and what that means is that so in kids there's an upper limb score and there's a lower limb score, which there's just not in anything else. Kind of like no, no other specific scores in kids that are well validated, and this is so so that the kind of the generation of the tool was really properly well done. Mm. Um, and there's a bank of about 30 questions for the upper limb. And on average, it, it, it asks eight questions in order to give a score. So it's kind of clever. So because it's all done online, if the kid answers, well, look, I can't do anything with my limb at all, then it's not going to say, can you throw a javelin? Yeah. Um, because, you know, that question is completely irrelevant. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. So it gives you, you know, it gives you a score based on the, the previous question. It changes responses. So I kind of like it. I think it's cool. I think kids like it. There's a few questions that aren't necessarily relevant to to the UK audience, like lifting a pitcher yeah. for a jug. But but we've got permission from Promise to to adapt that slightly, and so that's what we're doing in my trials. But Promise features in all of the trials that I do. So that's be it craft, which we talked about, or science, which is a media condo one. That's really good. And I think, like you say, I think that one of the big things that, to my eyes, you know, nothing frustrates patients more than they having to they answer a question like, I'm struggling to walk, and then you're asking questions about whether you can run five miles, you know, and that adaptive nature of it, I think, is, is good for the patients, isn't it? Because it's less frustrating for them to fill in, and it's um, a much more efficient way to, to get their outcome, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think one of the concerns is that there may be some ceiling effects. Yeah. Uh, and I do think that's a concern. So so certainly in the science trials, so my media condor study, we also ask the sports and performing arts elements of, of Dash. Yeah. Um, the patients told us that, that that kind of seemed right. Yeah. So, so we ask that to supplement promise. Yeah, nice. That's great. So, uh, so that leads on down to the to the other study, which is, um, again, the, the guys from Nottingham, which is looking at the, the their treatment of completely displaced distal fractures with uh, a straight plaster or RMUA. And, and this would be fair to say methodologically a bit, a bit weaker than the other studies you've picked in terms of size, but really interesting study, I think, all the same. Yeah, I, I, I mean, this feeds into, you know, this feeds into the pandemic and this feeds into pe- people's fears, such surgeons' fears about what they should do with these fractures. Yeah. Um, and so there was a paper in the, the American Journal, which was a commonly known as the Hawaii study or the Crawford study, which, which demonstrated that leaving these fractures alone, that these offended distal radius fractures, that they remodel and they remodel beautifully in, in very little time at all. And you'll take a cast off at six weeks and all the x-ray will look bent and a bit wonky. The kid's arm is amazing. It looks normal. And the kid's eye, I don't understand what the fuss is about. <laughs> so there's been a, a kind of a creep internationally to treat these non-operatively. So I, I went to Gillette Hospital just before the pandemic uh, and I spoke to the guys there. And this was kind of standard practice. And in Nottingham, it's also been standard practice. So James Hunter, who's the senior guy in Nottingham, changed his practice in order to offer this as standard care. Yeah. Um, and I think James, who's actually also Girth League in the UK, yeah. As his own has been the only kind of surgeon who's been promoting this as standard care. So it's really nice to see his outcomes. Yeah. Um, which, which of course are beautiful. Yes. Um, his outcomes in, you know, of his practice over the last few years in the UK. So, so for that reason, I thought it was nice just to say to people, look, guys, this is cool. Yeah. This, absolutely. this is acceptable. And like we say, it's not necessarily the biggest series or anything, but 
that to me is the great thing in, in terms of it drives the equipoise, isn't it? You know, you, people don't know the answer because that shows that you can do do nothing, normative management, and they do very well. And it sort of questions all those myths that potentially are out there that people have maybe. Do you, it's interesting, Dan, you just mentioned it. How do you feel maybe in a, a different sort of healthcare system, may, maybe America, is that as well catching on over there in terms of this idea of normative management, these completely offended fractures? Is that, are they accepting of that idea as well? What's interesting is it is... If anything, the US are far more ahead of us. So there there was a a Posner RCT, which was a relatively smaller RCT, but it won the Posner Prize a couple of years ago Mm. after the Crawford study demonstrating how safe and effective Mm. this was. As I say, the guys in Gillette have kind of already adopted it as standard practice and already across the US it's it's, it's been just accepted. So, So if anything, it's us in the UK who are surprisingly more operative and, and aggressive in these yeah. and also I know the Australians are quite aggressive as well that's interesting that's really because I would say probably in the adult trauma it's maybe the other way around in terms of you know the aggression of sort of operative management that's that's fascinating no, I think that's it's a great paper that isn't it and I think like you say it's cool it's you know it shows that this system works and, and remodeling is amazing isn't it like yeah. you know a whole of the remodeling thing people just forget how cool it is yeah yeah absolutely you know? and it, like you say is it just something we've just forgotten with time and actually it was always there and it's just being brought back into our attention really and and that and that's great isn't it no i, I totally agree so i think i think introducing it through a trials introducing it through a craft study is a really kind of it's a safe way to do it and that yeah. that's one of the, the great benefits of, of doing this big multi-center study and also the impact group in the u.s they're just waiting to find out whether they've got funding for a trial in the u.s to do the same same as craft across the u.s and they just get a lot more money for it, seven million dollars in the US instead of my one and a half million dollars. But, but hey, <laughs> pittance, pittance. That's right. That's right. So, so just uh, before we finish up, you know, um, I mean, we've touched on it already, but what do you think? There's maybe challenges are ahead for research in your in your area. You know, what what are the next big questions that you guys need to need to ask? So, I think one of the most powerful things I ever published in the Bone and Joint Journal was our research priorities, and we laid out what our research priorities are. And, and our key research priorities are, are related to, well, I think the number one research priority was about slip purposes, so severe Sufi or Skiffy, whether we do a, a big formal dislocation or reduction or whether we pin it in situ in the, in the stable ones. And we've actually just got funding for that trial called the Big Boss Study. So China Archar have funded that. I'm not sure I'm allowed to tell you, but I've done that. And uh, and then there's a that's a whole list of other priorities as well. Um, Perthes disease should yeah. we operate? Shouldn't we operate? Mm. You know, the, there's there's lots of kind of tinkering going on around the world, but really we just need to bite the bullet and do the trial. Yeah. Um, uh, and then I think the other big thing that children's orthopedic surgeons love and love to hate is DDH screening. Yeah. And and DDH screening is controversial throughout the world, and it's done in different ways throughout the world. There's been some changes with the the system in England recently, mm. um, which has caused a little bit of controversy, but there just ultimately needs to be a DDH screening trial yeah. um, because that's the only way that it's going to put this whole process to bed. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm really, really, you know, I'm really keen on that because I, I do think, you know, a universal system of, of DDH screening would be good, but we've got to prove it's cost effective and, and the only way to do it through the trial. So, yeah. so that's my mission. Excellent. That's great. That's really interesting. I think that's the great thing about the, the trials, though, isn't it? Is that when there is so much, un, well, maybe not uncertainty, but argument, and and that's that's where a trial comes in because that means there is equipoise and people don't know. You know? And so that, that's a, the great reason for them. <laughs> so, well, absolutely. I mean, children's orthopedics has been untouched by research pretty much. So, so it's a great place to be at the moment. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the only 
one of the only fears is whether money, so so funding body money, will dry up. We've been very fortunate in children's orthopedics. We've got I don't know, about ten million pounds of research in the last five years, mm-hmm. so we're doing quite well. But but I'm very conscious that that you know the the the, the money's going to be tight for for governments around the world for many years ahead. You know, absolutely. Well, I think that's all we have time for. But thank you so much. That was that was a really excellent overview of your area and a really fun and interesting discussion. So thanks so much for joining us, Dan. That was great. You're welcome. Thanks, mate. And to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us. Feel free to tweet or post about anything we've discussed here today. Thanks for listening, everyone, and take care.